My wife and I really, really loved the show Smallville when it came out. Um, I am a huge Superman fan. Uh, my fav- by far my favorite superhero of them all. And I also love origin stories. I love finding out about the journey of a superhero to being that superhero. But something happened in Smallville that I began to take notice of. As the, sh- as the show went on, I feel like they kind of ran out of villains for him to fight. Like, you've got to have a new guy that's going to come against Clark and, and who he is and what he's going to become. And I feel like the writers kind of got bored. And so every once in a while, they would introduce this red kryptonite that would cause Clark to not act like himself. This red kryptonite would actually make him um, be more seductive, more ladies' man, more bad boy, more um, not willing to rescue or save anybody, but become more about himself and selfish and all these different things. And so this guy, this red kryptonite would randomly show up. And it was just, in my opinion, them throwing in an episode because they didn't have another bad guy to create. They couldn't create another bug guy or another electrocute guy or another you know, water breather guy. I mean, they couldn't do it. They just had to fight Clark against Clark. And so... What would happen, though, is they would be basically spending time, his friends trying to get this red kryptonite away from him so that he could snap out of it and be Clark again, to be himself, not be in this trance, if you will. And I tell you that because this is what Paul is about to go into with the Galatian church. In effect, what he's saying is, snap out of it. And he says it in some pretty, pretty intense toned words. And I love this about Paul because his intense tone was not out of hatred, but it was out of love for these people. So in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, you can begin to get a sense of what he's going into. Oh, foolish Galatians. That'll keep people reading, right? Like if you got a letter that said, you fool, and you just keep going. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? There it is. Again, after starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Now, that perfect word right there is is a little different than what we assume perfect is. When we think of perfect, we think of best behavior. But the understanding of being made perfect in the Scripture is being made whole, complete. And isn't that what we're all doing? We're all trying to complete ourselves. We're all trying to find a way to feel whole, to attain wholeness, to attain completeness. That's what we want. And so Paul is saying here, you guys are fools. Because what Christ has done has made you complete, and now you're trying to complete yourselves again being, by fulfilling the law. So he's going, this doesn't make sense. This is not, this, logically, you can't do that. You can't be made complete and then complete yourself. It doesn't work. And so he, he comes at this, um, this foolish Galatians idea is, is not spoken out of hatred. There's a scene from a movie that I want to show you um, because it's, it helps me explain the whole use of foolish coming from a place of love rather than a place of hatred. And so it's from The Lord of the Rings. It's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Um, and here you go. Run! 
Okay, well, let me try. Now I do the motions and you do the words, okay? Really powerful stuff that's, when you see it that way. Um, but there's a scene in the mines of Moria when this, this giant fire hall starts happening. And Gandalf looks back. Everyone else is kind of freaked out, but Gandalf knows what it is. And he says it's a foe greater than any of us can handle. And so he looks at them all and they, he says, run! And they all start running. And there's this great run scene, and they get to the, the bridge of Khazad-dûm, and as they're running across the bridge, Gandalf has his you shall not pass moment, and the guys are supposed to be running, but they stop and watch Gandalf do his thing. And so you think this, this uh, Balrog is defeated, and it, and it falls, but it throws up a whip and grabs Gandalf by the leg, and he's hanging onto the bridge, and he's like, run, you fools! Like, he calls them that, and they run. But the idea is that, that, that you fools... Wasn't, uh, wasn't its own thing. It actually started when he said run the first time. <laughs> he was saying run. You got to get out. You got to keep going. Don't stop. We can't beat this thing. We got to keep running. Gandalf didn't hate the fellowship. He wanted the fellowship to survive. So he said run you fools. And I know it's really hard for us to understand that kind of intensity. But it's this understanding that Paul the church was under his care. And he cared for them, and he was willing to say, do you see how foolish you are being in trying to complete something that's already completed? You're going to kill yourselves trying to do it this way. And so he begins to break this whole thing down of what actually is happening in us. It's the same thing in Proverbs chapter 27. The idea is wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. Understanding that Paul loved the church helps us understand his intense tone. Paul wasn't, wasn't somebody like today. I mean, like, like today's society, there are more people that say they're Christians, yet they hate the church, and all they do is trash her. Guys, I'm here to tell you that if you call yourself a Christ follower to hate the bride, I question where your heart is. Paul did not hate the bride. He loved the bride of Christ. That is why he spoke with such, in, such intensity. And it was out of his love and frustration for the church and that he was saying, come on, keep running to Christ. Stop looking at other things. Keep running. Don't forget what Christ has already done. Because you're going to find yourselves under a crushing weight if you do. And ultimately where Paul runs to is the identity of the people. Which brings up the question of, of what is so significant about the Holy Spirit? What is it about this Holy Spirit, especially when it comes to who we are and our identity? I don't know, for many of you, when I came to know Christ, I really didn't know much. I mean, I did the thing. I prayed the prayer, raised my hand, filled out the card, walked down the aisle, did that stuff. Did everything you could. And I was like, alright, so where does the magic fairy dust happen? When do I start walking around in gold coming up underneath my feet everywhere I step? When does all the light show and the, the cool everything happen? That happened for you guys? It didn't happen for me. It really just was an understanding, man, I am a really big screw up. 
That's really what I started feeling like more and more and more. I can't say the right thing. I fly off the handle at people. I do the wrong thing. I hurt people. I hurt myself. I hurt others. I just, I don't know what I'm doing. And so to tell you the truth, I've probably prayed the sinner's prayer about 10,000 times in my life. You ever do that? You go home at the end of the night, you're like, just in case yesterday didn't take, Lord, into your hands I commend my spirit. I don't know. I don't know what you say. Do I have the right combination of words? Did I say it correctly? Did I do the right thing? Did I bow my head the right way? Did I close my eyes tight enough? I don't know. When did it take? But see, I was focused more on my behavior, right? I mean, like when we don't feel saved, we're questioning us, aren't we? We're questioning what we're capable of, what we think we should or should not be doing, and so we put this standard on ourselves again that we just can't live up to. And so our identity in Christ, we're actually finding our identity in the law, to be honest. We're going, how good can I be or how bad have I been? Can I? And I just, I'm crushing myself under this weight. Now, what Paul was pointing to is the understanding that through our faith in Christ, We have received something that has ultimately marked us and identified us as gods. Like God looks on us and goes, I know you're mine. That's strange for us to rejoice in understanding that God knows we're his, because we're the ones who feel like we're not. We're like, I don't know, I'm not sure. But we're looking at our works and what we're capable of doing rather than what Christ has already done. Paul uses this understanding of who we are by the Holy Spirit marking us. Several times. And he does it over and over. He does it to the uh, church in um, Corinthian, in the Corinthian church, in 1 Corinthians 6. This church, screwing up big time. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does, for sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. There's the gospel reminder. So you must honor God with your body. There's gospel living. Saying, look, God's purchased you. You're his. Don't forget that. Now honor him with your life. To the the Corinthian church again in 2 Corinthians in his follow-up letter, he says in verses 121, he says, It is God who enables us along with you, to stand firm for Christ. He has commissioned us, and He has identified us as His own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything He has promised. And again, in Ephesians chapter 1, listen, He just continually reminds people of who we are by the presence of the Holy Spirit in us, and you'll see how that comes. God's purpose was that we Jews, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, He identified you as His own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom He promised long ago. Don't forget that. The Spirit is God's guarantee, God's guarantee, that He will give us the inheritance He promised, there's the promise again, in that He has purchased us to be His own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify Him. This is why I tell you that the Christian life is a a life of response. He rescues us, He marks us, He identifies us so that we would praise and glorify Him. 
We don't praise and glorify him, and then we get saved, marked, and rescued. It's a rescue that comes before the declaration of what he's done. We don't have to declare what he's done and then get saved. It's no, we are rescued, now we declare. It's different than anything the world has ever seen. And Paul was saying that our confidence that we are his is anchored in God's promise to save. So when I laid in my bed at night, I really was consumed with my behavior going, I keep screwing up, I keep doing the wrong thing, I keep saying the wrong thing. Maybe I'm not saved. God, please save me again. If the last night didn't take, you know, I've said a prayer 10,000 times, so maybe I am. Hopefully I am. But do I need to fill out a card again? Do I need to walk down an aisle again? I don't know what I need to do. See, it's all on me. When Paul's saying, no, it is about what God has done and us fixing our eyes on his promise and what he has accomplished. Thus, the Holy Spirit marks us as his. But then Paul does something really, really smart, and he brings in Abraham. And the reason he brings up Abraham, I mean, the Abraham, father of the faith, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he brings up Abraham to guys who are these hardcore Jews, these guys who are saying, you need to add to Jesus all the works of the law. And Paul goes, okay, you want to talk about being Jewish? Let's talk about Abraham for a second. And so he brings in Exhibit A, evidence, defense for the salvation through faith alone, through Abraham. Verses 6 through 9 of Galatians 3 says, In the same way Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith, the real children of Abraham then are those who put their faith in God. This is a huge statement. What's more, the scriptures looked forward to this time when God would declare the Gentiles to be righteous because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, All nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. This is a huge statement. This is the open door. This is the there's more clarity now to what the promise was, and that was the Gentiles, those who were not Jews, who were not given the law, who were not told to reflect God, now had the opportunity to be called children of God. And it was through faith. And it was all based on God's promise to Abraham. It's interesting, this, this last week I went back to Genesis. I was like, what about this promise? What about the promise did God make to Abraham? And I just wanted to see the contract negotiations, if you will. I wanted to see what was up with it and what was in God's mind and what did Abraham do and what did God do and all this different stuff. And so I went back and just looked at a couple of things. And you see, God says to Abraham, God reaches out to Abraham, first of all. Like, it wasn't like Abraham was going, God, please speak to me and call me. It was no, God, the story is, God calls Abraham, Abraham, leave your stuff and go where I'm telling you. Okay, you know, I mean, that's amazing, like that God would initiate that relationship. But then God goes a little bit further with Abraham and says, come here, come outside. I want to show you something. Look up at the stars. Abraham looks up at the stars. He's like, you see all those stars? That's how many descendants you're going to have. Abraham's like, uh, there's only one problem with that, God. I don't have any descendants yet. And I'm really old. How am I supposed to know that this is going to happen? And I love this because Abraham asks God, how am I going to know that you're going to do what you're going to say you're going to do? And I love this because this was when God goes, all right, let me show you how you're going to know. Go get me a cow, a ram, a goat, a dove, and a pigeon. Abraham's like, I know what's happening here. 
Because when you began to make a contract negotiation, and if it was a life-binding contract, there was this understanding of sacrifice, and it was a symbol, and it's a very graphic symbol, if you will. God goes into this, this symbol-making neg- agreement, this negotiation with these animals, and tells Abraham, hey, kill these animals, cut them in half, and set them apart. All right? So he basically, Abraham comes, brings, kills the, kills the cow, kills the goat, kills the ram, cuts them in half, puts one half over here, puts one half over here, just enough space to walk through it. And before this contract negotiation gets settled, God says to Abraham, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have as many descendants as I just told you. You're going to be a blessing to all the nations. But I'm going to tell you, your, your people are going to go through 400 years of, of slavery. Like God's predicting what's going to happen to the Israelites here. They're going to go through 400 years of slavery, but then I'm going to hear their cry and I'm going to rescue them. And then before all of that gets shut down, Abraham kind of falls asleep. And I haven't really paid attention to this. <laughs> Abraham falls asleep into this deep sleep and, and God's still speaking to him somehow. And then what happens in this contract negotiation, if you were to make this type of symbolic contract negotiation, the animals that had been split in half and put in two spaces and enough to walk through, if you were entering into this contract, you would walk through the path between the animals that had been split in half. And what that was symbolically saying is that if I break this contract, may you have the right to rip me in half, just like these animals are. Like, that's what this contract negotiation was saying. I'm telling you, if we did contract negotiation this way in America, things might be different. We might hold ourselves to what we've signed a little bit more intense if these were the way we negotiated contracts. But what I found super fascinating by this, and I want you to see it in Genesis chapter 15. After the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. You see that? Who walked through? God did. God was the only one to walk through in this contract negotiation. Abraham didn't do a thing. You know what that means? It means God's saying, look, if I break this promise, then you can rip me in half. But Abraham, this promise is not about you. It's about me being faithful. For some reason, it just, wow, what? I thought there was this thing that Abraham had to do all this stuff and follow these rules and all this stuff. But no, the only one to walk through in the contract negotiation was God. That's why in verse 20 of Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, God didn't need a mediator for this contract because he was the one who did it all. It was all on him. This idea of rescue, this idea of the promise was all on God. And he very easily carries that. And he carries it to this point where we're in Galatians now, where he's being reminded, where Paul's reminding the church about God's promise to Abraham. And it was because Abraham believed God that he was counted righteous. Look at verse, uh, verse 6 in Galatians chapter 3. And I just want to keep this on the screen for a little bit. In the same way, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. I just want to sit there just for a second. I don't think we can really run past this. Because what is being described here is saving faith. 
And what I mean by that is this is not a typo. It doesn't say that Abraham believed in God. That's not what it says. It says that Abraham believed God. There is a difference. Believing in God is not saving faith. When we see American statistics trying to back up America being a Christian nation, you know, CNN released something, a Harris poll finding in 2013 that said a strong majority, 74% of U.S. adults say they believe in God. Now, some would say, see that? There's proof that America is a Christian nation. Well, please explain to me James chapter 2, verse 19. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. The demons know that there's a God, so yes, they believe in a God. But believing in God is not the same as believing God. What is being described here is saving faith. What did Abraham believe? Abraham believed that God would do what he said he would do. From the one child all the way down to the blessing of all the nations, not depending on any of Abraham's help or works to bring it to pass. In Romans chapter 4, Paul kind of unpacks it a little bit more about Abraham's involvement. Romans 4.13, clearly God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. If God promises is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary and the promise is pointless. For the law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. I love how Paul simplifies things. He's got, look, you, want to th- you think you're perfect? You want to think you're perfect? Well, that would only be possible if there was no law, but there is a law, so you're going to break it, so you might as well get used to not being perfect through the law. Because the law breaks us. It shows us how broken we are and how in desperate need of God's promise for rescue we are. But in verse 6, he also uses another phrase. In verse 6, it says, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. I'll try and explain this way. When I was in high school, I, I played basketball. I loved it. I probably averaged seven, eight, eight points, seven or eight, nine points a game my whole career. Wasn't great. Wasn't terrible. Good rebounder, block shots, throw the, you know, love to pass, love to get everybody involved. I led the team in free throw percentage my junior year. Woohoo, you know, all these awesome things. But I wasn't great, but I wasn't terrible. And I feel like this is where we all find ourselves on the morality scale. Like, we like to say that, don't we? We like to say, well, I'm not, I'm not like awesome, but I'm not like terrible. But see, there's a problem with this. There's a, a, a very real problem you and I have to deal with. In James chapter 2, listen to how he clarifies for us. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. The demand is to reflect him perfectly, to live the law 100% of the time. No accidental flying off the handle, no middle fingers while driving, no lustful thoughts. Even more than what we're not supposed to do, think of the things Christ said we were to do. And let's just take the thing he said that was most important. 
He said what was most important was the Lord your God is one and to love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Anybody in here do that 100% of the time? Oh, I'm the only one? Oh, I'm sorry. I just lied. Dang it. I'm just... I'm just uh... 90% of the time, anybody? 80? Can I get 75? 70, 75, 75, 70, 60. 60, 65. I know you're not supposed to go down when you're calling, but 50, 50, 10, 10%, 5% of the time? I don't know. But I'm sitting here going, Jesus, the thing that you said to do, let's, the, you know what? If you're one of those people who's like, the Old Testament, I hate it all. Let's just look at what Jesus said. Love him. That's the most important thing all the time with everything you have. And love your neighbor as yourself. Anybody in here do that? No. This is why Jesus' life for us matters just as much as his death matters for us. Because Jesus did all the do 100% of the time things, and he avoided all of the things you weren't supposed to do 100% of the time things. Jesus fulfilled both of these things for us. He was without sin but he 100% of the time obeyed. This is a big deal. And this is what it means when his righteousness has been credited to us. What I mean by that is, I, you know, I told you my statistics weren't great in high school. But it would be like me comparing my stats and going, man, I'd really love to be known to having Michael Jordan's stats. I'd really love for when somebody Googled Jason Garris, they would find my basketball statistics had been replaced with Michael Jordan's statistics. And it all comes by me believing in Michael Jordan. I believe in you, Michael Jordan. <gasps> my stats are your stats now. <laughs> when people look at my stats, they see your stats, Michael Jordan. Yes! And it's not like, work really hard, Jason, and then one day maybe your stats will look like Jesus' stats. No, it's I have been given Jesus' stat line by my faith in Christ. So when God looks on me, he doesn't just see me as 100% forgiven, he sees me as 100% righteous, which is insane to me. It's that crazy understanding that yet I am 100% his, 100% righteous, not because of my own work. And I know that's really hard for us to say. But we've been made clean, made whole, not by our works, but by faith in Christ alone. We have been credited something that was not ours in Christ. And then Paul continues to unpack with us just the value of understanding you can only live by the law or by faith in Christ. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14, but those who depend on the law, this is one way of living, to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scriptures say, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say, It is through faith, this is another way of life, that a righteous person has life. This way of life is very different from the way of the law, which says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles, that's you and me if you're not Jewish, with the same blessing he promised to Abraham. 
so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. There he is, again, marked our identity found in him. Paul is saying, should you choose to live by the law, you're cursed. Separation from God is the end result trying to live by your own works. But in verse 12, this large announcement is wrapped up in it. This way of faith is very different from the way of the law, which says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. The obvious curse of trying to live by the law is you're not God's children. And I know that doesn't make a lot of sense to people because we, wait, 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 but we're all God's creation. Yes, we are. We are all God's creation. But the Bible says that in order to become a child of God is faith in Christ's finished work. So to move from creation to child is faith. So the obvious curse is not being God's children outside of relationship with Him. You are outside. But the subtle noticed curse I have found by trying to live by the law, maybe this is you, anxiety, insecurity, never sure I'm living up to my own standards, oversensitive to criticism, I'm often jealous or envious or I'm boastful or I'm prideful because I have placed all my eggs in the basket of self-reliance and dependence, I've set myself up under a huge crushing weight. You know, I think I'll find my life with my to-do list, but the life I truly want can only be found in one place. And as the band comes and we close this morning, I want to read Galatians three thirteen and 14 again. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing, for it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Though through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham, so that he, we who believe might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Our identity being sealed by the Holy Spirit. You know, the curse we're talking about here in the Old Testament is if you were found guilty of a, of, a, of a crime punishable by death in the Jewish custom, you were taken out of the city and you were thrown stones at until you died. You were stoned to death. But then not only were you stoned to death, your body was hung on a tree. And the significance of your body being put up on a tree was that they were saying this person has been divinely cursed. You want to talk about foreshadowing? Do you know the Old Testament points right to Jesus? It wasn't that they were crucified on those trees, but they were hung on a tree saying that they had been divinely cursed. You know what that means for Jesus when he went on the cross? He died the abuser's death. He died the murderer's death. He died the liar's death. He died the thief's death. On the cross, Christ took on him the sin of the world, even though he himself was without sin, hung on a tree, cursed on our behalf, so that we might not be. Paul describes it in his letter to the Corinthian church. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, and this does not make it, this is not to be interpreted that God made Christ, formed him. No, this is God saying, I wanted my son 
to be in your place, who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Christ was treated in every way as if he was a sinner, yet he was without sin. This is the shocking news that Paul called the Galatians foolish for forgetting. If Jesus became a sinner for us, you and I have become righteous in the same way. Not just forgiven of sin, but made righteous, perfect in God's sight through faith in Christ. You know, it's interesting because there are a lot of people who like to say, when you put your faith in Christ, it's like you never sinned. No, we've sinned. But there are those who say when you put your faith in Christ, it's just as if you've always obeyed. Christ's righteousness has been credited to us. Not something we deserved or earned, because then it wouldn't be credited. It would be earned. So this morning as we, as we close, I'd love for you to consider what way are you living by? When I say living by, I'm meaning the term that what we rely on for happiness or fulfillment or what we live by gives us meaning or confidence or definition. The Bible says there are two ways to live, by the law or by faith in Christ's finished work. And this way of faith is very different from the law. Which one will you choose? Jesus, I ask that in this time as we respond that you would make it very clear to us where we have been relying Have we been trying to live by the law, which actually is crushing us? Or would we respond to your invitation, to your promise of new life through Christ? I ask this morning that you would make very clear to us where we are choosing to live. And I ask that we would have soft hearts to repent and to return. It's in your name we pray.